0: that I'm also a bit intimidated to be here, this room full of brilliant minds and uh, incredible, incredible scholars in the room. And at first, I was a little kind of flattered to be here with this august group, and then it hit me. I know why they brought me here. I'm the guy that's supposed to provide some intellectual diversity to the conference. <laughs> um, so I, I understand and accept my role, um, when Dave Graham laid out the tasks for me, he he asked me to essentially uh, provide a scene setter to inform the discussions, the primarily legal discussions later today, to give you some insights into the coalition military operations and how the military views the situation across U.S. Central Command's region, uh, definitely a region in turmoil, particularly with regard to ISIS. Um, so, both from my command's perspective. Central Command's overall view, but also from my personal perspective as a legal practitioner, as an operational lawyer trying to apply the legal concepts uh, to the reality on the ground, or in some cases on the air or in the air, at sea, and in the cyber domain. So I will faithfully try to perform that role and fulfill that task and give you my proverbial muddy boots perspective, though I'd be a bit admit that my boots are muddy only from the view of someone in Washington, D.C. Now, as I put together my comments, I started to assemble a list of caveats and other things like disclaimers for which I felt a need to apologize. For example, I've been AWOL for the last two hours. I was over at the Army JAG school talking to our LLM candidates over there, and as many of you know and have uh, been through yourself, uh, uh, we, we take all of our new partners. Our majors in the JAG Corps and commit a year uh, to study. And we discussed many of these same topics over there this morning. And I had to do a quick uniform change, sprint back over here. And now that I've caught my breath, I've consolidated several thoughts uh, that I'd like to read to you in the form of a letter of apology. So this is, this is what it says, Dear conference participants, I apologize to Professor John Moore for missing his welcoming remarks. I apologize to Jessica for missing most of her strategic overview. I caught the tail end. If uh, if I say anything that contradicts what she says, you should definitely believe her. Um, this one will sound familiar to you. If I apologize uh, that the comments today reflect my personal reviews, my personal views, and not the views of the Army, U.S. Central Command, or the Department of Defense. And finally. Uh, I'm I'm sorry if I tell you anything that you already know. We we have a a disparity of backgrounds in this room, from folks with no military experience to several retired generals and ambassadors that will be here today, so I'm going to try to set the scene and get us on the same sheet of music um, without insulting anyone's intelligence. If I do insult your intelligence, it's just a sign that you were really smart when you came in here, so you should at least feel good about that. Um, and actually, I do have one final thing to say, and that is I sincerely apologize for using PowerPoint slides. It's, uh, it, 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 in presenting the planning and operational aspect of this, they, they tend to come in handy. So I'll, I'll, we'll, uh, with that, I'll jump right into this. This is our agenda, and we have an hour and 15 minutes or about an hour and 10 minutes remaining to cover this. Feel free to come and go as you'd like. Because their PowerPoint presentation or their slides, if you feel like you need to move forward to get uh, to see them better, by all means, you're not going to offend me. If you feel like you need to move back uh, to get away from them or closer to the food, uh, that's completely your prerogative. So I'll start with uh, the very basics about who we are and what we do at SentCom. A quick national security structure review and a CENTCOM 101 just so you understand my perspective and my command's role. And then I'm going to bounce back between back and forth between the U.S. coalition military operations that are out there, our activities, and some of the legal issues that are closely related to those. Our priority at CENTCOM is definitely ISIS, and I know that's the priority of the conference. But ISIS is certainly not the only threat that's out there. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are like Coke and Pepsi. They're out there competing to be number one in the terrorist arena. Um, So I I plan to focus on the following countries. Uh, They're listed here, Uh, but this is based largely on the conference agenda. We've got Iran, Afghanistan, Yemen, Iraq, Syria, and Libya. Now, two footnotes about these the first is that I concede that Iran was not on our conference agenda but it is a huge regional player uh, that significantly affects the listed countries and I I really felt I'd be somewhat derelict if I didn't uh, address them to a certain degree and the second is that Libya although it is on the conference agenda it's not a country that's in CENTCOM's region Um, it's in the Africa Commands region, AFRICOM. Um, So I've coordinated with the AFRICOM staff judge advocate, my counterpart over there, and I will certainly try to convey some uh, some the basic information regarding that, but just understand that that Libya itself is not typically, or not part of the CENTCOM region. Uh, Now, since this is a public event, everything I say today is unclassified. And that's not a big deal for most of you. Uh, But I got to tell you, it's a major hurdle for me uh, because most of my daily work is done at the classified level. And and I obviously can't reveal classified information or client confidences. Um, So how do we bridge this gap uh, yet still have a meaningful dialogue? Now, the primary tool that I've leveraged for this is some media headlines. It may seem like a strange way, but I've selected articles uh, that raise several operational issues um, or legal issues or, in some cases, both, just to help spur the conversation along. Now, I'm not going to confirm the accuracy of, of all these media articles. In most cases, there are always some inaccuracies, some errors. Uh, but, but overall, they, I think they're a very helpful way to illuminate the issues um, and tee these, several of these key issues up for discussion. So feel free to let me know if you have any questions at any time. I will certainly answer the easy ones and my plan is to defer the hard ones to the legal panels later this afternoon where the smart folks will get up here and, uh, and be able to answer them. Okay, this is a key takeaway slide. In the event I break down, get stage fright or you quit on me and decide to leave. I'm going to give you just kind of the, a, a few big takeaways, key themes right up front. First, the United States is not going at this alone. What we do is part of a coalition effort uh, to fight an away game, and, and that's uh, you'll see this theme kind of play out during, the, during my comments here today. The second, and it's closely related to the first, is that we rely heavily On others. And by we in this case, I mean the United States. We rely heavily on others throughout our operations. Uh, This strategy is essentially called by, with, and through, uh, but you'll see that that has consequences as well. And then finally, ISIS is not a state. Uh, I hope that last one doesn't surprise anyone. If it does, uh, you you might be starting at a level even beneath me, Uh, but there are are also legal consequences to that that uh, that will likely come up during our conversation. Okay. Uh, This is a, a map of the world. This is the map of the world though as DOD, the Department of Defense breaks it down. The United States breaks the world up into six geographic regions and they're reflected here. The Central Command region is the smallest one on here it's the orange blob covering uh, the Middle East there now it is although it's the smallest um, it's we ha- we have an unfair share of the problem children in the world, and so you'll see what this means for us as I look forward here, break it down. We have twenty countries that's only ten percent of the the countries in the world, but again, a disproportionate share of of the problem areas. Most of these countries that we've talked about, Iran and Iraq, Syria, you've got, uh, you've got Egypt on here, Yemen, another uh, hot spot out there, not a place to most people will go frequently on vacation. You've got Pakistan and you've just got a lot of things that can go wrong and do go wrong in this region. So it definitely keeps us busy. Now a few characteristics of the region that I think again are designed to help set the scene here today. It is an energy-rich region. Over 50% of the world's petroleum and natural gas reserves are in the region. Uh, That, again, should not surprise too many people here. That's kind of what the region, the the, the natural resource that the region is known for. Uh, But there are some strategic maritime choke points also in the region. You've got the Suez Canal, the Bab al mendeb Strait, and also the Strait of Hormuz. Now, that... Those straits and the, the importance of those straits is very closely related to the, uh, to the petroleum issue because that's the, that's the means through which international commerce um, and, the, and that economy uh, uses to distribute the, the oil reserves. So very closely related. And the control of those straits and that canal is a significant strategic factor that plays into the calculus at CENTCOM. Um, there are also some religious, ethnic, and tribal tensions in the region. That's a bit of an understatement. I think you're all tracking those, and I, and I suspect uh, that Jessica uh, covered many of those during the, the last, last session. Uh, interestingly, there is a youth bulge, and it, a significant youth bulge. Uh, you see here the stats that 40% of the population, more than 40% is uh, sort of the youth, 15 to 29. And that might not be all that big of a problem were it not for the fact that uh, there were, if the, if, it wouldn't be a problem if the region was more prosperous and everyone was employed in that area. It is not consistently prosperous and people are not consistently employed. In fact, there's a huge unemployment issue that goes with that youth bulge and combined that creates a significant problem particularly for the strategic planners that are looking to the future of the region, uh, that, that's not an indicator that is going to trend well, more than likely, for the region. Okay, I talked about the importance of Iran, and uh, throughout the region there is also a significant Sunni and Shia divide, and to, un- and to ignore this divide is really to, to close your eyes to some of the problems that are in the region huge tension between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They are very significant competitors. You know, another Coke, Pepsi example, if you will. Uh, they see, they are vying for, comp, for fierce rivals, you know, for, you know, they're, they're not really aiming, mis- not shooting missiles back and forth between Tehran and Riyadh, uh, but they are competing for economic dominance, religious dominance, military dominance, and cultural superiority over the other, and that's a pretty stiff competition, and they are executing that often through proxies acting on their behalf throughout the region, and we'll talk about some of those later. Okay, honing in on some of the bad players in the region, I'll start here with ISIS the uh, the the headline group that's out there and the a few key takeaways from from this slide and that is isis is, is not simply restricted to as its name might imply uh, Iraq and Syria or, or the levant region they have they are they are spreading they are springing up subsidiaries or franchises throughout the region and they'd like to to spread more now, they are, as a result of military operations, uh, significantly on the decline, at least in terms of territory that they have in Iraq and Syria. But they seem to be making up for it by their global spread. And this reflects that they've had these pop up. Um, they've, they've, they've got these these new franchises that are out there in Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Afghanistan. Now, as part of their global expansion, some of it is establishing these provinces um, physically, but there's also a push to establish what, uh, what we've been referring to as a virtual caliphate, and that is a, sort of an online presence that creates the aura of the caliphate and helps spread the message in to, uh, around the globe. Uh, and some see this as even more effective than the physical, the physical caliphate that's out there. And uh, also closely tied to that, the ISIS is trying to inspire global attacks. I think we've seen that. We've seen this in um, in, in several places, Berlin, Orlando, uh, Paris. Any questions at this point on the, the sort of ISIS framework that's out there? Okay, I'm going to look at a similar map here for Iran and, and its proxies. You see it here. We've got... Uh, Uh, Iran itself, but they, as I mentioned before, they are competing in this space in in most cases through proxy forces, through surrogate elements that are out there. And this lays out some of those. Perhaps their strongest presence is in Iraq, their next door neighbor. They are huge supporters of the Iraqi paramilitary forces, what, what are referred to as PMF. These are predominantly Shia paramilitary forces in Iraq that are backed by the Iranians. Uh, The Iranians' intent for this is to defeat ISIS. And the interesting strategic thing here is that you see some overlap between strategic interests of Iran and the United States. There's been a lot of uh, academic look at and, and speculation about how this could be turned into some sort of cooperation and collaboration. There are those who reach back to the historical ties between the US and Iran pre-1979, where we've historically had a fantastic relationship with Iran and were very close partners and allies with with the Iranian uh, government. So some have speculated that there is potential out there for that again. Uh, We see indicators uh, of just the opposite at times right now, and we'll discuss some of those incidents later. But it's it's just something interesting to keep in the back of your mind. And while we're thinking about strategy and, and what might happen as planners, uh, these are things that are that are worth opening our minds about. As you go around, uh, I'm kind of going counterclockwise around this this map up here. You go over into Syria, where the Iranians support the Syrian regime, uh, President Assad, uh, and some of the groups in the, the in the country that are fighting ISIS. Again, the the Iranian threat here is ISIS, so Iran, Iran is very much focused on ISIS. You keep on going, Lebanese Hezbollah, sort of a traditional powerhouse hotspot of the, of the Iranians. That, uh, that proxy force is pretty much focused on the threat that Iran sees in Israel. So that is a counter-Israel force primarily. Continuing on down, uh, you've got Iran, Iranian concerns and attempts to control those two straits that I mentioned before. Uh, Part of this might be Iran's self-interest, their direct self-interest. Part of it may be a way for Iran to compete with and control their arch nemesis, the Saudis, the Saudis who rely on those straits to ship out uh, the oil and then in Yemen down there, the Iranians are, are supporting the Houthi rebels. And we'll talk a little bit, a little bit about Yemen here, but it's really the, the Houthi rebels backed by Iran versus the, the Yemeni government backed by the Saudis. So you see that surrogate proxy battle playing out there in Yemen as well. Okay, no military briefing would be complete without a mission statement and an organizational chart. It's just in our DNA. So these are the next two slides. Um, but I'm not going to read to you the CENTCOM mission statement. I'll simply tell you that uh, the, the goal is essentially peace in the Middle East. Th- that might be a little ambitious, but uh, at, at a minimum, we're looking to increase the stability in the Middle East. And that, that's what we do in a nutshell. Okay, quickly moving on to the organizational chart. Uh, this, this is the equivalent of our proxy and surrogate force uh, slide that's out there. This shows you where how CENTCOM is organized with our forces to do the things that we do. We have essentially elements focused on the, on the land, air, sea. We've got an, an Army command, a Navy command, an Air Force command, and a Marine Command. We also have special operations folks out there. And, and the other thing I'll mention is that we have commands that are specifically focused on the two major wars that we're fighting. We have a four-star command in Afghanistan, and we have a three-star command in Iraq for the Iraq and Syria fight against ISIS. Um, and then uh, my command, CENTCOM, is a four-star command headquartered at t- in Tampa, Florida. Uh, my boss is uh, General uh, Joe Votel, an Army four-star general. Any questions on how we're organized? We've, uh, you know, Again, this shows the major U.S. forces that are arrayed in the region. There are quite a few coalition partners in the region and then also a lot of non-state groups with whom we work who uh, would be the closest thing to our proxies and our surrogates that are out there doing our business on our behalf. Okay, this, this slide here is, comes back to that first key takeaway that I mentioned to you. And that is the fact that we don't fight this alone as a U.S. force. It is a coalition effort. And if you had asked me before I got to CENTCOM, how many people, how many different nations would I expect to be in this, uh, this organization, in this coalition, I would have guessed around 20 I, was, I would have started with the fact that there are 20 countries in our region. I'd say we don't have particularly good relationships with Iran or Syria, so drop two from the equation. But then we've got our per- perennial standbys. We've got the, the UK the, and Canada and Australia who are always by our side. So that would get us up 20, 21 nations. That's probably what we have in, in, in our coalition and that would have been a significant underestimate. I'll tell you there are 67 nations in our coalition, and we have 52 of those nations that are represented by a permanent presence at our headquarters in Tampa, Florida. And these are the 52 flags that you see here on this chart, and it's a it's a significant team. And most, most have a, a group of folks led by either a general or a colonel, at our headquarters in Tampa, this is an international event. this is a, a, a total international um, effort and so you have to ask yourselves you know why is it that um, that all these people are clamoring to join this fight when they're they're not in the region as I think through it, uh, I, I want to stop for a second and, and tell you a little bit about one aspect of deployments. It's probably considered a war story here, and I hope you'll indulge me with this. Um, But I think those who have been deployed can share with you the importance of getting these sort of letters from school children that are out there on a deployment. You get these, you know, school teachers around America will have them write dear soldier letters. You you send these letters off to the soldiers, and they're really neat to read. Heartwarming in many cases, funny and uh, a little twisted in other cases. You see some great artwork on these things. They almost always include some element of art. Some kids are fantastic artists. Many are not. Um, but, uh, but, but it's fun to see them in, in every case. But there's, there's one uh, letter uh, that I have kind of transcribed for you here that I, that I want to share with you. And it's, Dear Soldier, Thank you for being over there fighting the bad guys. If you were not there, the bad people would come here to America and blow things up, and who would want that? (laughs) And so, to me, uh, Megan here gets it. She is a future strategist. And if you really think about what our strategy is, it's to fight an away game. It's to go over there and fight the enemy there so that they can't come back to America and blow things up, as Megan has astutely uh, announced here. Um, And most of our coalition partners, most of the people in that coalition of 67 nations, see it the same way. They would much rather fight an away game than a allow an enemy to metastasize and grow and come back and strike their homelands. So that's kind of the strategy in a nutshell as articulated by a fourth grader. Okay, I'm going to jump into sort of a a country-by-country analysis and I'm going to start with Iran And I promised some headlines. This one, uh, this incident occurred uh, just over a year ago in January of 2016 where Iran uh, seized two U.S. Navy boats off of an an Iranian island um, and also, more importantly, detained 10 U.S. sailors who were on board those boats. Kept them overnight, created quite a bit of a stir, international incident. They ultimately released them uh, the next day. But you see different viewpoints out there as a result of this. And on the left side, you see sort of what I would say is the U.S. view, and this is a a quote from Senator John McCain saying, "Hey, to seize these boats and to detain our sailors is a clear violation of international law." The other side kind of conveys Iran's view, which is, "Oh no, it isn't. All right, that that to have these boats that stopped in Iranian." territorial waters uh, was not in- innocent passage, which is the maritime uh, provision that allows you to go through territorial waters as long as you are going through uh, continuously. It allows you to stop in certain circumstances for some things, including when you have a breakdown, which is what happened here. So that's just that's one of these incidents that, but it reveals to you some of the tensions that are out there between the United States and Iran. Here are a couple of others. Uh, last month there was an incident in which a U.S. ship uh, fired warning shots at some of these small little Iranian boats that came swarming near it. Um, again just a sign of the tensions. The, you see similar things like this play out in the air and you, you might harken back to the days of the U.S. and Soviet Union with, with fighters kind of uh, intercepting one another out there. This is the equivalent of, at sea. Uh, but um, this is this is another sign of the tension, and then on the right uh, on, on this you have a, a recent comment, a recent tweet from President Trump about uh, the ag- other aggressive actions by Iran. In this case, it was a missile launch, and he uh, he has asserted that Iran is playing with fire by these missile tests that it's conducting out there. Okay, that's a little bit about Iran. Let's move on to Afghanistan. Uh, Just to kind of catch you up on some of the big picture things. The, the, I think I I, I am binning the coalition efforts here into three main topics. The first is we're trying to support the Afghan government with a focused effort. At least in the military, our effort is on on developing the Afghan forces so that they can defend themselves. It wasn't long ago when uh, when General Gross was the the SJA, the the Staff Judge Advocate in Afghanistan, and then at CENTCOM, when there were over 100,000 U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Today there are less than 10,000. So what we're doing is relying on foreign forces, and in this case primarily Afghan forces, and we're training them up. We're preparing them to defend ourselves, but there's there's a benefit to the United States by them having capable forces that can protect them and us against the uh, the mutual threats that are out there. Uh, More specifically, uh, the second bullet on here is to support Afghan counterterrorism operations. So this is really the focused effort They develop their forces writ large, but with a real emphasis on the key enemy folks who we see posing the greatest threat to America, Al Qaeda, the historic threat there in Afghanistan. We all know how the whole Afghanistan war got started due to Al Qaeda. So there's still a threat posed by them, as well as an emerging threat by the Afghan. I'm sorry, by the ISIS province that has popped up in Af- in Afghanistan. It's called ISIS khorasan province or or ISK, um, shorthand in some cases. But that province has popped up, and those are some of the counterterrorism efforts that are going on. And finally, we want, to, we want Afghanistan to develop so it can sustain itself. We, we would rather not pay for Afghan forces. We'd rather they have the capability to pay for their own. So we're promoting regional trade and engagement so that uh, Afghan is a, is a much more sustainable and s- successful nation. If you look down on the bottom right, it lists some of the challenges that, that kind of pop up. And obstacles that get in the way of achieving these efforts here. The first is that there are continued economic problems. Uh, no one is going to sit here and, and say that they are going to accept um, accept Afghanistan into one of the leader leading economic nations of the world just yet. They're, they're, they are not there, and the, the future is not looking all that great for them. Uh, part of it is the is the next bullet on there is corruption. They are they are bound um, and some a pervasive corruption through their society. I will tell you that I, I spent uh, almost a year in Afghanistan with a, making a concerted effort to promote rule of law and to, contra, uh, and to fight corruption. And I, I feel like I made absolutely zero progress. I, I, I don't know that they made any forward progress, certainly not as a result of, of my efforts there. And then finally, sanctuaries in Pakistan. The enemies are allowed to just cross the border, go into Pakistan, and have safe havens there. You really can't talk about Afghanistan without talking about Pakistan, and you really can't talk about Pakistan without talking about India, because Pakistan sees uh, problems on both on, on both sides of uh, of of, it, of the nation. Uh, but I'll try to restrain myself and focus back here just on Afghanistan and how it affects Afghanistan and the safe haven in Pakistan for, for ISIS and Al-Qaeda is significant. Okay, this is uh, another headline, uh, not a particularly good headline, not one that, uh, that evokes any pride within the U.S. military, uh, but we all try to learn from mistakes, and this is something that, that, it, that is out there. This was the Doctors Without Borders strike in a place called Kunduz, Afghanistan, about a year and a half ago now. It was in October of 2015 where the United States thought they were striking a Taliban, um, uh, a Taliban headquarters in, in command area. It was not. It was striking a hospital run by Doctors Without Borders, ultimately killing more than about 40 uh, patients and staff and wounding about 200 people. Terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, uh, but what this highlights is one of the issues that we encounter every single day at at CENTCOM, and that is targeting, uh, targeting in full compliance with international law, with the international humanitarian law, or as we refer to it, the law of armed conflict, LOAC, um, and making sure that what we do complies with that. Civilian casualties are a big part of it. Civilian casualties are something that uh, we, we work very, very hard to avoid, um, and there, there's policy restraints that we typically have on ourselves that far exceed the LOAC or legal requirements. And that's something that may uh, may warrant some discussion later during my presentation or possibly during the uh, panels this afternoon. And uh, it's, it's probably no secret that the United States is targeting ISIS in Afghanistan as well. This was sort of In a time where we were pulling out of Afghanistan, we were narrowing our target sets, trying to limit our involvement and our engagement in Afghanistan. We did expand it to include uh, the ability to target ISIS there. Okay, moving on to Yemen. Uh, A lot of people have experience in or with Afghanistan, familiarity with Iraq. Uh, but it seems that far fewer people have much familiarity with Yemen. So I, I promise to, to, to try to set the stage for, for folks, even if you might not have that much familiarity with Yemen. So I'll, at the very basic level here, I'll note that there are really two conflicts that concern us in Yemen. They're both non-international armed conflicts, both NIACs. Uh The first is the conflict between the government of Yemen and the Houthi rebels. This is a civil war, sort of the traditional NIAC that's out there. The complicating factors, as I alluded to earlier, is that there is a Saudi-led coalition that backs the the Yemeni government. And Iran is backing the Houthi rebels. So you, you see that proxy war play out. I'll also note that the United States is providing some support to the Yemeni government and to the Saudi-backed coalition. That's the source of a lot of uh, discussion and debate. Uh, I came in on the tail end of Jessica's presentation. I know uh, Saudi Arabia's role was something that was started to come up there. I don't know how much, uh, how much else was discussed, but it's certainly something that we can go into if, if need be. Um, and then the other conflict there is one in which the United States is directly involved as a party, and that is the fight between the United States and al-Qaeda. The branch of Al Qaeda in Yemen is called Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The shorthand for that is AQAP, and that's a a pretty steady ongoing fight uh, that's out there. It is significantly limited by our presidential policy guidance, the the PPG, uh, and that's, I think, been a very interesting thing to discuss, particularly since the United States has has released a lot of the documents regarding that PPG in an effort to achieve transparency and let folks know it's generated a really interesting debate and discussion about the the rules and the policy guidance that's out there as it applies to targeting in in Yemen and the the similar targeting guidance that applies in Libya. Okay, Saudi conduct of the war in Yemen. There have been a lot of allegations about the conduct of the Saudi campaign, the Saudi-led Campaign. They're not. They're not alone. Many allegations of war crimes, that they're simply not complying with the law of armed conflict, that they're causing civilian casualties that are excessive, in violation of the uh, the proportionality rules of LOAC, and uh, and many ask the question: Is is Saudi guilty of war crimes? Similarly, there are questions being asked, like what about the other members of the coalition, others who support that coalition? Um, if the Saudis are guilty of war crimes, what about the others? Are they guilty too? What level of responsibility? So we start diving into the state responsibility doctrine, and it's one of these thoughts and concerns that permeates a lot of what we do. Um, additional actions in Yemen. Uh, uh, that I'll, Again, these are directly involving the United States. Not too long ago, uh, the United States took the unusual step of striking some Houthi, directly striking some Houthi sites in Yemen. For the most part, the United States has tried to stay out of that direct uh, direct involvement in that Houthi and Saudi fight. Uh, In this case, the United States justification that was released for this was that those Houthi radar sites had been involved in missile attacks on U.S. Navy vessels in the region. And this was a self-defense strike in response to the, the missile strikes um, on the U.S. vessels. The Missile strikes did not hit any of the U.S. vessels, but uh, this the missile strikes on the Houthi radar sites did strike the intended targets. So that uh, that was in the news is an interesting and sort of novel development in that conflict. And then on the right, more recently, this is this has been in the news. This was a a, an, uh, a mission last month that where. There was a raid by U.S. Special Operations Forces into into Yemen. The raid was designed to target the AQAP. So this goes back to that second conflict, the U.S. versus versus al-Qaeda. That raid resulted in a Navy SEAL being killed, a number of enemy being killed on the objective, and also a number of folks alleged to be civilian casualties that were out there. Um, And so a lot of press on that. Those are some of the legal issues about the civilian casualties. There have been a lot of non-legal issues that have come up in the press, the, uh, the questions about whether and how that mission was approved, whether it was a, 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 an appropriate mission to be approved, whether that the means to send folks boots on the ground into Yemen was, was new or not, whether it should have been done. Interesting questions, some legal, some just policy. I don't mean to say just policy as if it's just policy. But uh, for the lawyers in the room, there's a difference, and uh, you know we try to we try to carefully distinguish between the law and the policy, and uh, just trying to make that th- distinction there. Okay, moving on to what is uh, the the I think the conference focus, and it is certainly the focus of our efforts, as I mentioned at CENTCOM, and that is ISIS. Uh, they go by a lot of names. the the current uh, the current in vogue name is, is ISIS. This is kind of a back-to-the-future moment, which is kind of how it started. Other names out there are ISIL, dash. Uh, they call themselves the Islamic State. But I'll be honest with you that my favorite term used to describe them was what uh, the former UN Secretary General used. And he called them the un-Islamic non-state. And I, I think that's great. I think it's, it's accurate. Um, I, I'm not an expert on the on the religious aspects of how Islamic or not they are, uh, but certainly when it comes to to not being a state, I think uh, as I mentioned before, we we agree they're not a state. They don't meet the customary international law requirements to be a state. They don't. They're not entitled to treatment as a state. They don't get the benefits of statehood. They are they are not members of this Westphalian s- world that we have here um, in on the full scene of international diplomatic relations. Um. Syria is complicated. And that's a bit of an understatement. What I'd like to do is walk you through some of the things that make it such a complicated fight, such a complicated cultural uh, crevasse right there that you, when you try to wade through which is it's just very difficult. I'll start with the fact that there is a civil war going on and that kind of underpins a lot a lot of a lot of the activity. You've got President Assad, he's fighting opposition groups that have kind of rebelled and are trying to you know, get rid of his regime. Uh, that's standard enough, but the fact that there are more than one or two opposition groups out there. I've heard some estimates that are, there are over a thousand different opposition groups. That, that sounds impossibly high to me, uh, but people who, who are experts in this say no, That it's just huge Numbers of small tribes, all with competing interests, tribes and groups and and different elements that are all vying for power there. It's just, it's almost sheer chaos, just with regards to the civil war and the number of groups within Syria itself who are vying for power. The second bullet on here is the regional power struggle that we've already discussed to a large extent. this, This struggle between the two. Regional power players, the power brokers, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and how they are fighting their proxy war there in Syria. Closely related to that is that religious struggle. The two major sects of Islam, of course, are Shia and Sunniism. Those religious sects are, are backed by, once again, Iran and Saudi Arabia, and so. The religious differences between all these groups and is, is huge, and it plays a major part in, in why some outside players are coming in and being involved in the region. And then you move down to the Kurds, the different struggles, the struggles between the Kurds and different entities. For example, uh, some might think Turkey, who are very involved in Syria, are fighting ISIS. And you'd be right they are fighting isis but that is not their primary threat that is not their primary concern the turks primary concern is a kurdish terrorist group called the pkk turkey sees them as an existential threat and in turkey turkey's number one priority is fighting the pkk whether they're in turkey or northern syria and then You've got several Kurdish groups too. I won't won't go so far far as to say there are thousands, but there are a lot of Turkish groups. Some the United States backs. Some we train. Some we equip. Some we fight alongside with embedded advisors. My commander has gone on record as saying that the most viable force to defeat ISIS out there in Syria is a Kurdish group, a predominantly Kurdish group. So at the same time, we've got groups that the United States has declared to be terrorist organizations. Um, so there's there's fighting and there's competition between these Kurds. And what do they want? Some want independence and will tell you they want independence. Some want it and won't tell you. Others uh, keep their aims very closely guarded. Uh, at some point, when everyone who no longer has a mutual enemy and they start and their interests start to diverge, you can have some infighting with these, between these Kurdish groups, more infighting than you already have. Okay, moving down this list, now you get to some of the big power brokers, the big world powers who have come into the region. Turkey is one that I think has included that. Turkey is not in, in our region, but yet not... Turkey, the nation, is not in our region, but Turkey's military is heavily involved in the region and heavily involved in Syria, as I said, primarily to defeat that PKK threat that they see out there. Um, But there are sometimes tensions with Turkey. Uh, The president of Turkey accused my boss, my client, of being behind the coup attempt to overthrow the government of Turkey. That was a first for me as a lawyer, is to have my client accused of initiating a coup. Um, Not a good thing for a lawyer is to have have your clients be accused of of that. Uh, But so the relationship between Turkey, who is notably a NATO ally of ours, and the United States gets hot and cold. Sometimes it's fantastic. We base a lot of things out of Turkey. Again, they are a NATO ally, um, but sometimes there are tensions there. We've already talked about the U.S. and Iran tensions and how there might be some overlapping interests right now, but how will those turn if if and when ISIS is defeated? Like some have said, you know, if you defeat ISIS, great, that's our goal, right? But now there's this, an unanticipated consequence of that, which is the U.S. and Iranian interests may no longer be as aligned, and it could. some worry that that could cause or lead to a flare-up. So... And then you've got Russia. Relationship with Russia uh, go, is hot and cold. And don't ask me to predict how that relationship is going to turn out. I don't know, and, and, and I'd be very surprised if any of you in here can say with confidence what's going to happen. But I'd be glad to hear any projections. Um, and then Russia and Turkey, same thing. You know, at one point about a year ago, the Turks shot down a Russian plane, a Russian fighter. But yet uh, their, their leaders frequently meet and talk about collaboration um, on, these, on the Syrian problem. So I've gone through the vast majority of these players in Syria, and who have I not mentioned? I haven't even, talk, I haven't even gotten really to, to ISIS yet. Maybe I mentioned them, but I haven't really discussed their direct role. There's a the threat of ISIS. That's why we are there. We're concerned about ISIS, and I talked about the, the away game, and that's really the approach that the coalition partners are there for as well. Concerns that this could be a safe haven for Syria, that just about everyone, I'm sorry, safe haven for ISIS that just about everyone wants to take away. I, the, ISIS has its self-proclaimed capital of the caliphate in Syria, in a city called Raqqa, and, uh, and that is sort of a an epicenter right now of where where they are and where their power is that people want to make sure that they that is taken away from ISIS and so that's a significant reason for why the coalition is there. Okay, part of this again is to lay out the strategy right now. Now, I acknowledge that there is an ongoing US strategy review that the president ordered and that was submitted to the president on Monday of this week. And I know many of you would invite me to publicly unveil that new strategy for the first time right here, right now. Um, I'm going to decline to do that. Uh, But I I will try to reveal some of the things that, um, that have been projected and released already by those in the know. And that is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that's General Joe, Joe Dunford, has made several statements about what this new strategy is likely to entail. Um, first, they don't expect huge changes that are out there. Uh, some, but they do want to lay out an array of options for President Trump. So we can expect, I think, to see a list of different options, and nobody really knows what he's going to choose. Uh, my commander has publicly released that one of the options may include the option to have more U.S. forces on the ground in Syria. It's probably no surprise that that is an option that would be laid out there. Now, which options will be chosen? It, yet to be seen. We'll see where this goes and what happens, but it is it, we are in a period of flux. That said, what I want to lay out for you is kind of the current plan and the current issues that are going on out there. So these are our main US government lines of effort. Now I told you that what we do, we do as a coalition. Um, And generally speaking, the coalition is also aligned and doing these same things. What I'll say also though, is that this is more than just the US military. This is government wide. Uh, the military is only responsible for some aspects of these, and that's appropriate. Many of these are far more uh, appropriate for diplomatic or economic uh, experts in our government. Um, but the, the key overall, of course, is to protect the homeland. But I've highlighted a couple on here are the, that, that are significant, I think, for the, for the United States, for the U.S. military, at least at CENTCOM. The first is to build partner capacity. Now, that's a catchphrase that we use quite a bit in the U.S. military. I don't know how familiar it is in your circles, uh, but really this goes back, harkens back to that by, with, and through strategy. To, rather than sending U.S. troops in themselves to do the fighting, to be placed at risk, the the strategy is to build partner capacity, to develop foreign partners, both states and non-state partners, who can go in and do that fighting on our behalf. And so that's kind of a, a central piece that that focus that we focus a lot of our time and effort on at CENTCOM. Another down here is to disrupt ISIS's finances. Now there are a whole bunch of people committed to this task across the uh, uh, across the government and frankly across the world. Uh, but I, I, some of the U.S. military's efforts to go after ISIS finances, attacking oil revenue generating targets. Attacking bulk cash sites have, uh, have come into the media, come to the attention of the media, caused some scrutiny out there, and we may mention them later. So I, I just highlight them here because I think there's something that, that raised interesting legal issues that we've had to deal with as well, even though we're not the overall lead. You know, we've got experts out there in the Economic Center whose job it is to seize and freeze ISIS assets. That sounds great. Um, But the truth is ISIS doesn't use Swiss banks or anyone else. You know, they tend to be a cash-only business. And if they were using the global economic markets and banks, boy, we'd really be able to go to town by freezing their assets. But they just don't. And so we're left to resort to a lot of these more kinetic, um, blowing-things-up approaches to going after their finances. Again, interesting legal issues that take up a significant amount of our time at, at CENTCOM. And then finally... I'll emphasize this last bullet on here, which is to expose ISIS's true nature. This is a strategic messaging effort, and hugely important one that the military is is not well suited for, uh, and, and nor do we have the lead on doing this. This is a State Department function, assisted by many others. How do you get the word out there, and what on on, on m- making ISIS not an attractive place for people to go, killing their recruitment out there, and kind of Driving world opinion against ISIS, not just the, you know, we're talking world opinion among that uh, uneducated, unemployed youth bulge problem in the region that we talked about at the beginning. Big, hugely important task, and if you have answers, your services are needed. Okay, I just alluded to this, uh, blowing up oil trucks, striking uh, oil, um, petroleum separation plants that are out there. These are issues that, are, that have come up. The United States has received some criticism for going after this. A lot of it was based on some language that was in the Department of Defense Law of War Manual that indicated that revenue, I'm sorry, that war-sustaining targets uh, were, were valid military targets. Uh, I think we've st- stepped back on that, and I think the a, a better description is that some war-sustaining targets are valid military objectives, but not all. And uh, I, I think I think we are on correct ground um, in just applying the internationally recognized standards for what are valid military targets versus those that aren't. What I will tell you is that there is a tremendous amount of scrutiny at the highest levels that go into every single one of these targets to make sure that it qualifies first as a valid military target. And then second, to look at the proportionality assessment. At what else, you know, while we're, while we're hitting a valid military target, what will be the impact on the local civilian population, both in terms of property, damaged or destroyed, but more importantly in my eyes, civilian casualties that are the potential outcome of any one of these strikes huge concern. A lot of, lot of effort goes into minimizing that. You you can't get it right every time. I mean, war is a dirty, nasty, ugly, painful thing. You never have perfect intelligence. It never plays out the way you hope it, it does. The enemy gets a vote. Uh, but I will tell you the commitment to doing this targeting right and minimizing civilian casualties is there. And it's shown to me every day by both our folks involved in the targeting process and the legal advisors who, at every level, are deeply involved in the process. And you see on the right here a similar line of effort to go after the the finances. In some cases, it was striking um, what were former banks that had just turned into ISIS vaults used to store their payroll money for the ISIS fighters uh, that were struck. Um, But this would be distinguished from an effort to hit an actual Iraqi bank that was being used for commerce by Iraqi civilians. Um, So while it's easy for a headline to not really make that distinction, I assure you that the folks making the targeting decisions here were very much making that distinction. Okay, Libya. All right, there's stuff going on in Libya. I guess is the is the thing to say. It's it's a lot, in my view, like Yemen. Uh, You've got an ISIL franchise that has popped up there, and they're doing bad things to folks. Um, United States is trying to strike back. I told you we're using that counterterrorism presidential policy guidance that imposes significant policy constraints above what the law of armed conflict requires to ensure that what we're doing there is the right thing, that we really make every effort to minimize civilian casualties, and that we're very careful to hit only those things that we're, we're, we're sure we we're hitting. Um, and then some of the other things going on. The UN is involved or has been involved in Libya, perhaps more so than it, it is involved in Syria right now. Part of it is that there was more international consensus, perhaps in the early days of Libya, uh, where UN Security Council resolutions were able to get through. Whereas now, uh, due to some strategic level disagreements by the permanent members of the UN Security Council, it seems that there's almost a stalemate when it comes to Syria. And there's not much that seems to be coming out of the Security Council that's really helpful in terms of how we're going to get ahead with 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 the Syria problem. And I've already mentioned the presidential policy guidance a couple of times. This spells out for you what a couple of those requirements are. And, those, and the first is, harkens back to what we would all recognize as a self-defense requirement to go after folks only where they pose a, an imminent threat. The second on here is to really ratchet up the requirement to make sure you get the right terrorists. Make really darn sure you know who it is before you take the shot. And then the last one on here, as I mentioned, is a significant effort to avoid civilian casualties. Okay, so I talked through several of those nations and headlines and events and now what I want to do is maybe have a little discussion about some of the legal issues uh, that that we haven't already touched upon or perhaps expand on a couple that we have. And so I've got a slide here that kind of just lays out some potential topics to discuss. We can discuss them here. We can discuss them later. What I wanted to do was to start with a couple, perhaps to provoke a, a discussion uh, later today. Um, the legal bases for operations is something that we spend a lot of time making sure we, we have that. Now, we focus on ensuring we have a U.S. domestic legal basis as well as an international legal basis. Um, you know, I, I won't spend much time in this setting on the, the U.S. domestic basis, but uh, the international legal bases, the different options there are interesting to discuss. The And they're different in each one of these conflicts, what our basis is, and, you know, whether it's a U.N. Security Council resolution, whether it is the consent of the host nation to be there conducting operations, or whether or not we're exercising a self-defense basis under international law. And then what is the level of U.S. involvement when we're going in there? Is it it something that rises to the level of an armed attack, that type of use of force in the country, or is it some sort of activity that's beneath that level of a use of force? And then you always have that potential basis that sometimes uh, crops up where people talk about potentially using a humanitarian intervention as a legal basis to to go in and conduct military operations in a foreign country. Often called the responsibility to protect or the right to protect uh, those. Not accepted under customary international law yet. There are many who think that it's near, others I think who feel that it it won't get there. The criticisms of that approach of course are that it creates a loophole uh, that people without a good intent. Will drive a truck through. Uh, that they'll try to leverage. Hey, I'm just I'm coming into this country. I'm conducting military operations because I felt a need to intervene and fix a humanitarian crisis. Folks, uh, folks that take that view say that a UN Security Council resolution is the a better approach to address a humanitarian crisis um, and and gain international um, uh, c- consent or, I guess, international support and backing via that approach. Okay, state sovereignty. Uh, this comes into play every day. No matter what you're doing, you need to respect state sovereignty. I know we've got a panel talking about cyber today, and sovereignty in the, in the cyber domain is the latest and hottest topic that's out there, and that will be a great discussion. We, we see similar discussions at our level on just your normal stuff. Transit passage innocent passage through someone's territorial waters. Um, things like that 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 come up relatively routinely, operations conducted on someone's soil, I already mentioned those the the steps we have to go through to make sure that what we're doing is consistent, fully consistent with international law. Um, a couple of comments here about customary international law. Uh, two notes. in in particular. The first one is that I I want to emphasize what most of us know here, and that is customary international law is formed by state practice. It's not formed by the practice of non-states. It's not formed by opinions about what international law ought to be, how nations should act. Um, we, We can't make a motion in limine to declare customary international law because we think it's a good idea to do so. That's what we have the treaty process for. Customary international law only forms when states um, are acting in that way. And, of course, the second prong to customary international law formation is that states have to be acting that way out of a sense of legal obligation. Now, the first prong, deciding what states are doing, is not that hard. You can usually see what people are doing and say, okay, this is what they're doing. This is how they're acting. The difficult part in practice is figuring out why they're doing it. Are they acting out of a sense of legal obligation or are they just acting out of a sense of of, of an increased policy requirement because they think it's a good idea or it's just a better approach or it's less risky for them to do so. Very, very difficult. Uh, when you're trying to see how customary international law is developing to determine why states are acting the way they do and what their intent is and whether they think they are acting in compliance with a legal obligation. I already mentioned the state responsibility doctrine. Uh, The traditional standard here is effective control. Now, you know, states want to form coalitions and they want to work together to achieve things. Um, And When they have effective control over another state, I firmly believe that they should be held responsible for the actions of that state. With that control comes the responsibility to make sure that they're behaving appropriately and in compliance with the law. But if you don't have control over somebody, it seems inappropriate to hold them responsible for the actions. It's kind of like coming in and saying, hey, we're going to hold this whole neighborhood criminally responsible for the actions of the person who lives on a corner. Uh, Because we think that the neighborhood can really put a lot of pressure on people to act properly, and we think it will will make our our community behavior better. Well, criminally, that's just not a, a proper approach. And in this context, state responsibility, to try to hold someone responsible for the actions over someone for whom they don't have control, just seems wrong to me. Um, there are some out there that, that suggest what I, what I call the cuisine test, which is if you've ever eaten French cuisine, you're responsible for the actions of the French. Um, and so again, you, you, see, you, you, you see where my position is on this. I think that's clearly too far, and that's obviously hyperbolic, but I, I see that you know if, if you're going to hold someone responsible, it needs to be something that they can change and effectuate. Targeting. Uh, I I mentioned this already, but I think this bears some repetition here. Uh, Again, this is where I spend the vast majority of my time each day. Um, And for objects, for targeting objects, we stick to the standard definition of military objectives um, that I said nearly everyone in our coalition agrees to. And uh, the the DOD, the Department of Defense General Counsel, recently came out and, and, as I said, clarified that law of war manual. That problematic issue, in my view, fixed it and makes it very clear that we only target those objects uh, for which that qualify under the traditionally accepted universally accepted definition for what makes a, a valid military objective out there on the battlefield um, I also want to share my uh, share my views on targeting personnel in a non international armed conflict because this uh, this This has kind of come up in several contexts before. um, And this is one that has perplexed me a little bit. Uh, The the standard rule out there in an an international armed conflict is that all members of an enemy's armed force are targetable based solely on their status. Uh, Now, there are obviously exceptions out there for medical personnel, POWs, the wounded, etc. But generally speaking, you can kill every member of the enemy's armed forces. And it doesn't matter whether they're frontline infantry fighters, pilots, or commanders, or whether they're rear echelon folks like uh, finance clerks, lawyers, recruiters, or human resource managers. You can kill them all while they're at work, or you can kill them all while they're at home asleep in their bed. That's the traditional LOAC rule. And that's just something I want to keep in mind as we transition to a non-international armed conflict. And I've heard some arguments out there that because ISIS members don't wear uniforms and aren't members of a state armed forces, then they must be treated as a pure civilian and are only targetable while they're directly participating in hostilities. And you can see the the potential problem there. You can see the potential advantage that would be gained if that was the rule that applied to them. You know, so directly participating in hostilities is a fairly high standard. Not when they're directly supporting hostilities. Not while they're indirectly participating in hostilities. Only while they're directly participating in hostilities. And under that standard, I assure you that most lawyers, finance clerks, personnelists. Uh, we, we wouldn't be targetable uh, under this standard, but under, international armed, under the traditional rules, we are. Um, now, again, I think that approach to limit it to the civilian treatment of ISIS members is flawed because it gives them an unfair advantage. It creates some perverse incentives for them to not wear uniforms, not comply with the law of armed conflict, and not become a state. Now, the answer, in my view, is that interim phase where you treat members of ISIS as members of an organized armed group. And members of an organized armed group are treated as members of an enemy armed forces, and appropriately so in my view. So that's just uh, one thing I wanna put out there is, is, is in my view the importance of treating members of Al Qaeda, members of ISIS as members of organized armed group. Now I will go back and say this about the civilians. Um, everyone on the battlefield is presumed to be a civilian unless you can identify them as a combatant. Um, And so we we still should and do treat the civilians who we've not identified as members of ISIS and members of ISIL as civilians. And they are only targetable as civilians when they're directly participating in hostilities. And so we, we do employ that standard for civilians, but just not those who we have identified as members of ISIS and members of al-Qaeda. Okay, we're almost at the end of our time, and I want to reserve a couple of minutes for, for questions. So what I'll do is jump to my key takeaways and say, hey, I already talked about these. I hope uh, that somewhere in the discussion you uh, – you, you found something beneficial for that and it hopefully helped set the stage for the later discussions today, and I want to at least reserve the last five minutes for, for any questions that you have. Yes?
1: Thank you very much um, for those remarks. Let me ask two questions, one about the situation in Yemen and one about Syria, if, if you can. Um, In Yemen, you identified two different non-international armed conflicts taking place. Obviously, there's the U.S. operation uh, against AQAP in Yemen uh, that we describe as a non-international armed conflict. And you also talked about the ongoing civil war in Yemen and described that as a non-international armed conflict as well um, between the Yemeni government and the Houthi rebels. To what extent can you characterize the extent of the involvement of Iran and Saudi Arabia on behalf of those two parties, that is to say, is their involvement in the conflict sufficient to make that piece of what's going on in Yemen an international armed conflict? Um, and there are obviously, as you know, a host of consequences that would follow from that sort of designation. So that's, that's the first question. Um, and similarly, in Syria, my understanding is that Turkish forces are now, you know, I take it occupying at some level, right, certain northern uh, portions of Syria. And the press reports about that have indicated that some of those operations are US-backed or US-supported in the sense that, I'm not sure, in the sense that maybe we're supplying intelligence or logistic support. Um, Is there anything that you can say about the nature of US involvement in the Turkish sort of ongoing occupation there uh, that that might help shed some light thank you
0: yeah, I'll take them in a reverse order and tell you that uh, the, the, the situation in northern Syria with Turkey with Turkey and a lot of the groups are, is very complicated and I, I we're very I think it raises a lot of concerns about how this may play out because we've got different groups with whom we are aligned we've got the Kurdish groups that I mentioned that we support and that we are serving with And we've got our NATO ally partner, Turkey, with whom we're also um, serving with and and closely aligned with. And they are at odds with one another. And that's obviously a potential flashpoint that has folks concerned. Uh, I don't, you know, we are doing everything we can to try to, to keep those forces away from one another so that nothing goes poorly. You know, there's, all you can do is try to positively influence them. And I don't know how that's going to pan out, but yes, it is a, a matter of concern. Back to your first question about whether or not the involvement of the Saudis in Iran in Yemen could be characterized as an international armed conflict. I, I could certainly see the argument there. You, you highlighted some of the potential second and third order effects that might be problematic in so doing. I think it's best characterized as an international armed conflict because they've, they've deliberately, or at least the Iranians have deliberately, kept their involvement indirect. Through their surrogates, and uh, and the S- Saudis have kept their involvement indirect because they're going after only non-state actors. You've got no state actors going up against other state actors in every engagement, in every case. It's, um, there's there is a non-state group involved, and I think that allows it to keep it at the non-international uh, level. The only thing I'll say is that a lot of the Discussions about non-international armed conflicts have broken them up into two categories. The traditional internal international armed conflict, a civil war, and then an external armed conflict where you have external players. This clearly falls into the external non-international armed conflict subcategory. And we have time for one more question.
1: Thank you. Uh, you mentioned the PPG a number of times uh, in your remarks, and recently President Trump asked Secretary Mattis um, in his plan to defeat ISIS uh, to make a recommendation on whether any changes should be made to uh, policy constraints, um, presumably meaning the PPG. And I was wondering if you could comment on whether you think uh, the constraints in the PPG are strategically beneficial and why and then also um, one of your slides indicated that the PPG was still in effect in Yemen and I was wondering if you could just confirm that that is indeed the case. There's been some speculation based on recent strikes and operations that the PPG might not currently be uh, force in Yemen.
0: Yeah what I'll say is that these are general policy guidance and there obviously can be case-by-case exceptions to them and like every policy there are, there are absolutely advantages to every policy, and there are disadvantages. So the symbol of the law is, is a, are the scales, the scales of justice, and you're trying to take competing interests and balance them properly. So when you make an effort to drive down civilian casualties – you tend to increase the risk to your own forces. You, you accept more risk. You wait longer to do things. And so there are always both advantages and disadvantages. There are clearly some advantages to, this, to the approach on, um, on the PPG. And I, I think there are also some disadvantages. And it's up to the policymakers to decide you know, where that falls out. And then it's up to the military to just then execute whatever policy is decided upon. So. Pat, thank you very much. My pleasure. Enjoy your lunch.